Thank you, Van. You may be seated. Let's pray. Oh, Father, you're so, so good to us. Uh, Even when we're not faithful to you, you're faithful to us. Uh, And you showed us that um, by sending your son to die for us, uh, to come rescue us. When we were your enemies, you loved us and you came for us. God, let us understand that um, in a new way this morning. Maybe someone for the first time, would they understand that this morning? Would you heal uh, spiritually blind eyes this morning? Not because of anything any of us do here on stage or on this campus, Father, but because your spirit broke into their heart this morning. And so would you do that through the preached word this morning? God, I ask that not just for this room, but for all of the churches here in Spartanburg, uh, the lost and the downcast and the suffering here in Spartanburg, Lord, and then across the globe. Uh, Would your spirit move in a mighty way as your word goes forth? um, It doesn't return void, and so we ask, Lord, that it would have its uh, proper effect in the hearts of millions around this globe as your word is preached. Father, I lift up my brothers and sisters who are suffering right now under severe persecution because of the word of Christ and because of the gospel. Wherever they are, Father, would you give them an extra measure of favor this morning to endure the suffering and that through their suffering, people would see you and be drawn to you just like your suffering drew many. So would that happen this morning? Would Christ be high and lifted up and people be drawn to him this morning? Uh, Father, we love you. We need you this morning. I need you uh, right now. We pray for your favor and your presence in this room in Christ's name. Amen. So good morning, Hope Point. It's been a while uh, since I've been up here. And uh, if you're new here, my name is Dan Yacovello and I'm the executive pastor here at Hope Point, um, and I, I appreciate the, the opportunity to preach uh, this morning. Um, I appreciate the break as well as we were going through a building project of this size, um, but I'm just so happy to be back up here and be able to preach again. I count it a privilege. Uh, I don't consider myself an emotional person, but when I hear that Christ, that through Christ and in Christ, I'm accepted by God as righteous despite my utter unworthiness. It really does bring a flood of emotions to my heart and to my mind. And it is this unusual emotional response, for me anyway, that has brought me to the text uh, this morning. Our band, over the last few months, has been singing this song called, Is He Worthy? And every time we would sing this song, I find myself fighting back tears. I'm thinking, you know, what's going on here? And and finally, I thought to myself, the next time I get the opportunity to preach, I want to unpack the scripture that that song is based off of, which is Revelation 5. So I pray this morning that you with me will worship Jesus with greater intensity because we studied Revelation 5. Five together this morning. And also, spoiler alert, I've asked the band to sing and lead us in this song after the sermon. So uh, be ready for that. 
I've titled my sermon, The Worthiness of Christ, again, Revelation chapter 5. This is of utmost importance for us all to understand, whether you're uh, a skeptic of Christianity, an explorer of Christianity, a new believer, or an old one, this is of utmost importance. We desperately need to understand that Christ is worthy to govern and unveil God's divine plan for the universe and that he is worthy to receive power and glory and blessing and wisdom and wealth. This is our Christ. In fact, I believe it so much and I believe it's so important that I want sort of your help this morning, I want, you, I want to ask you to pray in your head or in your heart right now. Obviously, you don't have to if you don't want to, but would you sort of just take a second in your head? You don't have to bow your head, close your eyes, or move your lips. God will hear you. You can do this while I'm speaking and just ask God, say, Father, will you help me understand the worthiness of Christ? God, help me understand the worthiness of Christ. So thank you. As I've said, our scripture is Revelation 5, and I think it'll be helpful for me to take a couple minutes at the beginning here and unpack sort of the context of chapter 5, because we're sort of jumping into uh, the middle of a, of, a, of a letter, really. I think it will aid in our understanding and, and setting the scene for chapter 5 for us this morning. As many of you probably know, the Apostle John wrote this letter uh, this book of Revelation, and John was Jesus' most beloved disciple, okay? And at the end of John's life, we know that he was exiled to an island on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, exiled by himself on an island. And the first thing that Jesus gives John are are letters, but before he gives those letters, he says to John that I'm going to show you some things that must take place. And then he goes into these seven letters, the first three chapters really of Revelation, of, of the book of Revelation. And these seven churches are really representative of all the churches across all of history and time. And after these seven letters, Jesus takes John to heaven, right? Some of you know this. He says, come up here and I will show you what may, must take place after this. Simply meaning that he was about to show John how history would end, how Christ would eradicate evil, vindicate his saints, and a sinless eternity would commence. The setting of this heavenly scene is the throne room of God. It's pretty magnificent. John sees the throne of God, and him who's seated on it has the appearance of jasper and carnelian, these gemstones. This one seated on the throne is God the Father. From the throne comes flashes of lightning and peals of thunder. Around the throne is an emerald emerald rainbow. Before the throne are seven torches and a sea of glass like crystal. Imagine this in your heads. Around the Father's throne are 24 more thrones, and seated on those 24 thrones are 24 elders with golden crowns. Also around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures. And in the throne room of God, the one job of these four living creatures is to every day, without ceasing, day and night, sing this song. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever these creatures would do this, the 24 elders would then fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him and cast their crowns before him. And this is what they were singing. 
Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. This scene brings us to chapter 5. So chapter 4 is this beautiful throne room of God with continuous worship by those created beings surrounding the throne of God. And then in chapter 5, we're still in the throne room of God, but our attention is turned to another character before the throne, unlike any mentioned so far. This chapter is the most dramatic chapter of the book. It sort of serves as a fulcrum or pivot point of the book where authority is transferred from the Father to the one who is worthy, worthy to begin unfolding the end of history. And we will see that this, this one is Christ. This worthy one is Christ. And as I studied this chapter, two points of application kept sort of bubbling to the sur- surface for me relative to Christ's worthiness to receive this authority. And I kept seeing these two points. Christ is worthy, therefore weep no more. That'll take us about halfway through verse 5. And then second point of application, Christ is worthy, therefore worship him. The worthiness of Christ should assist in drying up our tears and our sorrows, and it also should put us on our face in worship of him. And we're going to see this in this chapter this morning. So let's begin with Christ is worthy, therefore weep no more. The transfer of authority in this scene begins with John seeing something in the hand of the one who is seated on the throne. Look at verse 1. He says, remember, he's in the throne room of God, sees the beautiful scene of God on his throne. And he says, this is what he sees. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. As majestic as this throne room scene is, it's interesting how all of our attention now gets sucked to the right hand of God. There's something in the right hand of God. Some Bible translations render this word in here as upon or on. Almost as if God is sitting on his throne in his right hand and just holding that scroll in his right hand, waiting for the right person to come take this scroll. It's in his right hand, so we know that signifies authority, like this scroll contains something that is of high importance for us. Like this is the thing that John is here to see. John must have been thinking, is this the document that Jesus referred to when he said, I must show you of what must take place after this? Is this it? Am I going to get to see this? Was this the document that would unlock the future of the church? Could John himself look into this document? It was obviously comprehensive, right? It had writing on the inside and on the back of it, which was unusual for a scroll. It was obviously highly confidential. It was sealed with seven seals, impenetrable to the human eye, known only to God, kept secret until the time of fulfillment, only revealed by the Sovereign One. What could possibly be written in this scroll? Most scholars believe that the scroll or book contained God's redemptive plan for his church and the future history of God's creation. It contained the events that would end history and begin eternity. So what what does John see next? Let's go to verse 2. So he sees this thing in the right hand, this scroll in his right hand. And I saw a mighty angel 
proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Again, all the attention drawn to the right hand of the one who is seated on the throne. And this mighty angel, maybe an archangel, comes and puts this challenge out to the universe. Who is worthy to open the scroll? Who is worthy? Who has the authority to take from the right hand of the creator of the universe and enact the contents of this scroll? Who has the authority to take from the right hand of God the plans that would end history and begin eternity? Who is worthy to do this? Now, this is the first time that we see this word worthy in this chapter. It's a Greek word, uh, axios, which really doesn't help us much. Uh, The Greek word has this meaning of having the weight of another thing of like value. Okay, it gives the sense of, of drawing down a scale. So, so imagine a scale with a weight on one side and it takes up the other side of the scale. What could you put on this side of the scale that would bring that other side even with it? Whatever that weight is would be considered a worthy weight. So this mighty angel is putting this challenge out to the cosmos. Is there anyone out there, anyone at all, that could equal the worthiness of him who sits on the throne that could take this scroll and enact its contents? This is where the drama builds. Because we get, first get a tragic answer to this question of who is worthy to open the scroll. Look at verse 3. And no one... In heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. A worthy candidate is not found in all of creation. No one has the strength, the wisdom, the authority to do this. No one has this equal weight with God to do this. The challenge is given. If there be any creature that can take and execute the plan of God, let him stand forth. Nothing. Pin drops. Everyone on earth, in heaven, under the earth, stands motionless at this challenge that the angel puts out there. No angel in all of their might, no man or woman in all of their wisdom and effort, no demon and not even Satan in all of his cunning and trickery can stand up and take the scroll from the right hand of God. All the achievements of men, of angels, of prophets, of apostles are not enough to take the scroll from the right hand of God. And so for a moment, it appears that redemption has been stalled. And this causes John great grief. Look at verse 4. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. When no one is found worthy, John weeps loudly. Some translations say greatly or bitterly. Bitter weeping at this realization. This is weeping as if there was great loss. Almost as if I can imagine it losing a child. And this weeping is bitter and loud. Think about John here too. So, so John, if you remember, is with Jesus watching this scene happen, right? Remember Chapter 4, verse 1, Jesus said, come up here and I'll show you this. So Jesus is with John, and yet John is weeping. All that John has experienced with Christ, and for a moment, 
He believes that Christ can't even open this scroll. All that John experienced with Christ in his lifetime, all the miracles he saw Christ do, and now he's privileged to join Christ for this heavenly throne room scene, and yet he doubts. He doubts. Does it sound familiar? Even John doubts. And so John is devastated that God's glorious plan will not be carried out. The final coming of the kingdom of God might go unrealized because there's nobody worthy enough to open this scroll. This means that history will not be governed in the interest of the church. No protection against future trials, only meaninglessness. No eternal joy if no one can open the scroll and finish what Christ has started. So John was distressed over the helplessness of the cosmos. If no one can open the scroll, if no one can execute the contract between God and man, then everything is wasted. Everything is meaningless without a worthy candidate. There is no justice. There is no final understanding of everything that God has been doing, of everything that God has allowed to happen. It means nothing if there is not one worthy to open this scroll. And that's why John is crying. This is what brings John so much sorrow. There's nothing but silence at the angel's question of who is worthy. A lack of understanding of God's plan will bring much sorrow. And without a worthy candidate to open this scroll, it's all meaningless. John weeps, and we should too. For without a worthy candidate to open the scroll, all meaning is lost. All hope is gone. Without that one worthy, we have no hope. We need a worthy candidate. You need a worthy candidate to stand in your place. And there's nothing but silence here. But wait a minute. Someone's getting John's attention here. One of the elders is saying something to John. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Stop weeping, John. There is someone worthy. Behold, look. It's the lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David. He has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Lion of the tribe of Judah... The root of David, these are just Old Testament names for Christ the Messiah. And now he is at this scene. Weep no more, John. Weep no more, church. There is one who has conquered, who is worthy to open the scroll. Redemption has not been stalled. Hope is not lost. There is meaning to all of this suffering. Maybe you're weeping today. Maybe you're weeping over a chronic illness. Maybe you're weeping over a lost child or an untimely death. Maybe you're weeping over the meaninglessness of life. Maybe you're weeping over your sin. Maybe you're like John, weeping over your own unworthiness. And I'm here to tell you the good news today. Through sorrow and weeping eyes, like John, we can see our Savior. We can see the conquering Lamb saying, Weep no more, for I am worthy. So weep no more, brother. 
Weep no more, sister, for the lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David has conquered. In this world you will have tribulations, but take heart, weep no more, for Jesus has overcome the world. The path to life is narrow and the suffering is great, but weep no more, for there is someone worthy. Are you part of Christ's church? Then all the suffering, hear this, all the suffering, all the sorrow, all the trauma, all the disaster, all the distress, all the loss, or whatever it is that makes you weep, hear the elder saying to you, weep no more, for Christ is worthy. The lamb has been slain. All the suffering and sorrow of this life will make sense when the scroll is opened. Why did God allow you, his child, to go through what you're going through? It will all make sense when the scroll is open. It has meaning and it's in the scroll. When it's opened by the worthy one, all of it will make sense. And not only makes sense, but God will be seen as good because of it. It's in the scroll, and there is a worthy one to open it. So Jesus comes forth when no others are to be found. He went into a far country and returned victorious. Like a fierce lion, he defeated sin and death and returned to his proper place of authority. Now it is his conquering that made him worthy. But what's interesting about his, his conquering... Is, is how he conquered, how this fierce lion conquered. Look at verse 6. It's interesting. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, what did he see? I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. There the lion was, in between the throne and the living creatures. But he didn't look like a lion, did he? He looked like a slaughtered lamb. Standing yet slain, upright yet slaughtered. The standing should remind us that he is alive, that he has conquered. The slain language tells us of how he died, how he conquered. He was a conqueror who died while defeating his enemy, only to rise in victory and stand by the throne of God once again. This is the paradox of the gospel. This is the paradox of God. The lion conquered, not by might, by his, by his own sacrificial death. The only one worthy to open this scroll was led like a lamb to the slaughter. The lamb image should flood our minds and our hearts with thoughts of blood-bought forgiveness. Of blood-drenched atonement for all who believe. This is how we got our forgiveness. This is how we got our atonement. It tells of the substitutionary nature of how forgiveness works. God allows a worthy candidate to stand in for you, to take the punishment that you should have taken. And here this lamb is. Jesus was your substitute. Jesus bore the curse and punishment on your behalf. This made him worthy to execute the divine plan for the future of the church. So I love, I love this imagery here, this lion and lamb imagery. In his suffering and death, we see both lion and lamb. We see a lion because he had the courage and power to defeat sin, Satan, and death. 
We see a lamb because, as the prophet Isaiah said, he went like a lamb before the slaughter. Nobody took his life. He went willingly like a lamb to the slaughter. So a lion to conquer Satan and a lamb to satisfy God. This is why he is worthy to receive all power and wisdom and wealth and might and honor and glory and blessing. So because he is worthy, the lamb approaches the throne and takes the scroll. Verse 7. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Jesus, the slain lamb, without hesitation, approaches him who's seated on the throne and takes the scroll. He doesn't take it by force. He doesn't take it by threat or deceit or fraud, but by authority and worthiness and appointment by God, his father. Jesus understands his authority to do this. He didn't raise his hand and ask permission to come get this scroll. He went and got the scroll because this was his dad. This was his father. This was his family. He, he understood his authority. So Jesus Christ is co-equal with the Father, able to govern the affairs of the cosmos. He is the one worthy to bring the scale down and say, I am co-equal with the Father and I have the authority to do this. Thus the transfer of authority from God the Father to the Lamb takes place. Christ the slain Lamb now will execute the divine plan where judgment of evil and vindication of the saints will unfold. This transfer of authority now, this cosmic transaction sends a ripple effect of worship throughout the whole creation. The universe sees this transaction, it bursts out in singing and praise to the one who is worthy. Watch what happens. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, prostrate, laid out worship when this exchange happens. Can you imagine this scene? This transfer of authority from God the Father to the slain lamb, and it bursts out in worship of the slain lamb. The rest of chapter 5 consists of three worship hymns or doxologies about the worthiness of Christ. So not only should his worthiness assist in drying up our tears, but it should also put us on our faces in worship of the slain lamb. Christ is worthy, therefore worship him. Christ is worthy, therefore worship him. Doxology or hymn number one starts in verse nine and it's described as a new song. A new song because it's a song about redemption. If we remember the singing of praise of God in chapter four, they said, you are worthy, our Lord and God, because you created and you sustain all things. Now we have a new song about the slain lamb because of his redemptive work. They're singing of the worthiness of Christ because of his act of redemption, and the song goes like this. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. See, the text says, by your blood which is another way of talking about him being slain. This blood was used to purchase people for God. So we get a little bit more insight into the effect of him being slain. What did his being slain do for us? It ransomed us back to God. 
You see, because of the sinfulness of man, the people of God created for himself were doomed for an eternity away from him in hell. So what does God do? He pays to get us back. He pays to rescue us, and the price is the blood of his son. Jesus is worthy of our unending worship because he paid the ransom price to save us. We couldn't do it on our own. We were doomed for an eternity away from God in hell, and God doesn't just write us off as prodigals, doesn't just start over. He pays his own blood to come get us. This is why Christ is worthy. And look at the comprehensiveness of this rescue plan. He says, I'm going to rescue people from every tribe and language and people and nation. The rescue plan is not universal, but it is without distinction. God has his people, his elect, that are in every tribe and every language and every people and every nation without distinction. And that's who Jesus came for. His people that are scattered across this globe in every language, in every tribe, in every people, in every nation. This is the mission's element of Christ's sacrificial death. He is about saving people from every ethnicity. His saving grace is not narrow and it's not national. It's a multi-ethnic rescue plan. And the book of Revelations then is a proclamation, a call to the nations to repent and turn to the Lamb. We repent of our unworthiness to open this scroll to be our own substitute and we turn to the Lamb. Cling not to your own ability but to the Lamb. Trust in Him and you will be counted worthy to be part of the ransomed. You'll be part of the last phrase in this song that is sung and you, God, have made them, these ransomed people, a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign On the earth. You see, the blood of the slain lamb had a dual effect. Not only did it ransom us back to God, but it also made us a kingdom and priest to God. So, corporately, we are a kingdom. Individually, we are priests. You see, we are priests to the nations. We have a universal mission to reach the nations. The blood of the lamb was not simply slain to get you to heaven. The blood of the lamb was slain in order for you to reach more people for God the Father. We serve God by telling the nations, like the old elder tell John, weep no more, there is somebody worthy to stand in your place. We tell the nations, weep no more. We tell the nations of the worthiness of Christ so that they will join with us in the heavenly choir and singing about the worthiness of the slain lamb. This message is for the nations. One commentator went as far as to say that the elder in this scene is representative of the church. It is the church that tells the weeping, the hopeless, the downcast to weep no more, for there is someone worthy. We have been made priests by the blood of, blood of the Lamb to tell the world about the Lamb. The second doxology, or hymn, about the Lamb is sung by myriads of angels. Look how the scene is described in verse 11. John says, Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures And the elders, the voice of many angels, numbered myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, innumerable, innumerable number of angels, right? 
He can't count them. There's so many. And what are these angels singing about? They're saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. This is what they're singing about for all of eternity. They're singing about the lamb's slainness. They're singing about the cross. For eternity, we're going to be singing about the slain lamb and his work on the cross. The cross, and specifically the slain lamb, is the center of eternity. He is worthy to receive a sevenfold praise. He is worthy to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And it does not stop there. The number of the worshipers of the slain lamb increases again. Verse 13, And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Notice that worship is directed equally toward God and the Lamb here. This is a magnificent scene, right? Universal worship by all of creation of God and the Lamb. It echoes what Paul told us would happen about Jesus. Philippians 2. So that at the name of Jesus, just like in Revelations, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. The glory and worthiness of Christ the Lamb is enhanced here by the fact that all of creation is worshiping Christ and God equally. Christ is worthy, folks. And because He is worthy to take and open the scroll and to receive all honor, wisdom, wealth, power, might, glory, and blessing, He is worthy of your trust. Trust in His worthiness, not your own. This is how you become worthy with Christ. This is how you become part of the kingdom and priesthood of God. Timothy Keller said it this way, The irony of the gospel is that the only way to be worthy of it is to admit that you're completely unworthy of it. Become part of the ransomed today. Trust in the Lamb's worthiness. No one can comfort your sorrows like seeing the lamb slain. No one can produce worship like the sight of the lamb slain slain on your behalf. Christ is worthy, therefore weep no more. Christ is worthy, therefore worship him. Let's pray. Father, uh, our unworthiness is overwhelming at times. Many, many in here weeping, Father. Doesn't look like it here on, on faces, Father, but we know um, the suffering, the weeping, the sorrow uh, that is filling this room up. Uh, Father, let them know to weep no more. Let them see the slain lamb the conquering lion, the root of David, through their tears. Uh, Let them see Christ uh, 
in their place. Let them see Christ as their substitute and dry up their tears. Uh, Father, would, would you break into a heart this morning, uh, soften it, heal blind eyes to see the worthiness of Christ. Worthy to take and open the scroll. Worthy to absorb the wrath of God on their behalf. Worthy to stand at the right hand of the Father. Worthy to stand resurrected. Worthy to receive all power and all riches and all honor and all glory and all blessing and all wisdom and all wealth. He is the only one worthy. Let us get a clear glimpse of our unworthiness, of our sinfulness, of our shortcomings, of our weakness, of our need for Christ. And would someone reach out to him this morning in faith and repentance and become part of the ransom this morning. Join the kingdom in the priesthood of God. Uh, Father, would we do that in this room? Because of the power of your word, because of your gospel, let it set somebody free this morning. Let it heal bitterness and skepticism and doubt. God, only your word can do that. Mine cannot. So, God, would you heal? Would you comfort? Would you be seen as beautiful this morning? Because you were slain. And because of your work on the cross, it's all we have. It's all we're going to be singing about for all of eternity. You are worthy, Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.